Welcome to another episode of the Future of AppSec. Today, we have a phenomenal guest with us. His name is Anshuman Bharthia. Anshuman is currently the Principal Security Engineer at 30 Madison, and he comes with an incredibly long uh, history of working in the world of application security, product security. Anshuman, welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Hi, Anshuman. I'm super excited to be here. Fantastic. Uh, Anshuman, before we go too further in the podcast, your background and experience is super interesting to me, super exciting as well. Uh, could you explain to our audience uh, just a little bit about, you know, where you, uh, what your, where your career started, how you, how you got into this space and the twists and turns it took uh, over the past few years? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll try to keep it as short as I can. So um, I came to the U.S. in 2008 to pursue my post-graduation. I did my master's in computer science and I took a bunch of security courses. My concentration was security. So that really uh, sparked that interest where of, you know, just the security domain in me. And I, I started to become more curious about it. Um, after that, I, I basically started a couple of jobs where I was a web uh, applications developer. I was just building web applications. So my, my background is really computer science, you know, building software from scratch. Uh, but soon after, I, I had to transition into security just because it seemed so interesting. Um, and then my first security uh, gig was with a boutique security firm called Sigital. It's, it's now, um, I think, acquired by Synapsis. Um, and there are so many folks out there uh, who, who come from that same company and who are super uh, well-rounded. So that really, you know, started my security journey. Um, post that, you know, I spent a few years there. I learned about how security works in general, different technologies, different ways of web application hacking, so on and so forth. Um, and then since then, I've predominantly been working in product-based companies, securing the products, right? I've been basically making sure security is baked in the SDLC, uh, working with our engineering organizations to make sure that you know, code gets shipped securely and safely. Um, so I worked for EMC. Uh, I, I was uh, doing product security incident response uh, for them. And then I I basically moved to the West Coast after that. Um, I, I had a, a short gig in Intuit as well. I was on the offensive side there. So again, I've switched domains. I worked on the defensive side, offensive side, and I've, I've worked across the you know different domains within information security, uh, like CloudSec, AppSec, uh, InfraSec. Um, yeah, so that's, and, and then, you know, just been with uh, 30 Madison for the past year or so, helping build the product security function here. Phenomenal. I got to tell you, man, I come across so many ex-Sigital people. The Sigital crew has done really well for themselves in this world of AppSec. Uh, yes. Some very, very phenomenal people came out of Sigital. Uh, I so couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, so it's also interesting to me that you spent some time in the offensive side doing red team related work uh, at one of your previous roles, and then you moved into the defensive side as well. Uh, is, is, there a, is there a story behind it? Is there, was there something of particular interest to you in, in terms of making that switch? Um, there were a few things for sure. So, you know, as a security consultant, when I started off my career, I used to hear this quite often from our customers is, yes, you, you can hack us anywhere you want. You provide us all these security vulnerabilities. But the recommendation or how to fix something is always uh, something that customers look for. And most of these 
uh, engagements, they don't focus on the recommendation piece of it, right? So that's really what in, uh, made me interested in, in figuring out the other side as well, right? Like I, I knew all, all about web application hacking, but most of it, right? Um, but then I also started getting curious as to how, as a security engineer on the defensive side, how would I go about protecting our application infrastructure? So that was really a pivotal moment for me, if I remember correctly. And there was a good opportunity for, for me to actually be an offensive side and into it, as well as look at the defensive side. Like I had access to both. So I, I basically observed a bunch of problems that could have been solved using automation and whatnot. So that's really how I started to get into more of the product security side. That's phenomenal. And I think that's the doing both of those things well is incredibly hard, Um, especially because on one hand, you know, sometimes how easy it is to exploit things and whatnot. But on the other hand, you would also know that how difficult it is to actually fix those things, right? Like, especially some of those foundational architectural flaws, it might look simple, it might look dangerous, but it is really difficult. Uh, and when you think about all the business priorities that the developers might have or the dev teams might have, it's not always a, a black and white decision in terms of uh, uh, making a security investment. Yeah. Uh, so it's a phenomenal journey. Um, and currently you're at 30 Madison and I believe uh-huh. you were the, the first product security person to join this company. Yes, uh, I, yeah, I've been basically working for the past eight or nine months to help a bootstrap the product security slash application security function from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. No. So what what does that feel like? So when you join a brand new company, um, mm-hmm. and if they they've uh, they've done some work around it, but uh, you know there's there's a little bit more maturity to bring in. How do you how do you prioritize like what is a day zero problem that needs to be solved right now versus something else that can be done, you know, next week, next month? Like, how do you, how do you make those decisions? Yeah, sure thing. I, it, it's it's uh, actually funny you ask this question because I recently blogged about it as well. So how to go about, you know, um, basically building a product security program from scratch. So I think what it boils down to is really understanding what risk means to your organization, right? What uh, the risk appetite looks for, right? Uh, how much risk uh, is is your organization willing to tolerate? And then building your program and prioritizing things accordingly, right? In other words, um, if there are a bunch of applications, uh, let's say that are exposed on the internet, right? And like a few of them are hosting critical customer information, whereas the other ones are mostly for POC purposes, right? As, as an org, if, if your risk, uh, if understanding of risk is clear, you're obviously going to prioritize the one that has the customer information, right? So that's, so I think the first few weeks is really about understanding what that looks like and then having a sense of what are all the assets that are the most critical for an organization and then building a program around it. So yeah, it's, it all comes down to the risk um, and how well you and your uh, C-levels understand that. Yeah. So, so I'm guessing you would have to do a lot of um, discussions and interviews and information collection to get to that point, right? Because yeah. if uh, if you or your team didn't exist in that company before, I'm guessing there's no system that collects all this information for you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's essentially the first thing that I did is, you know, uh, my CISO, he basically asked me to speak to a bunch of folks who were 
you know, like VPs and directors. And I just basically went to them and I, I just uh, listened to them and, and they just kept uh, sharing with me the details about their environment, you know, their culture, everything. And I just noted each and everything down. Um, so yeah, that's essentially the first step is to have an understanding of the lay of the land, so to speak. And that helped me uh, frame my thought process accordingly mm. and approach the right folks. Yeah. So the, it, it might sound simple that, you know, you, you talk to a, a VP or a senior person in engineering and you collect all the information. But, you know, a decade or so ago, when I was trying to do that, I was even struggling with like, what is the exact question I asked? Like, what do I need yeah. to know? Right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I'm sure the world has changed now, but like, do you yeah. have specific questions that you were asking them? You know, you can start with some of the basic things like what keeps you awake at night, right? Uh, have you known or heard of any prior security vulnerability, right, that have been disclosed to you or you heard from somebody else, right? Those kind of things um, gets the conversation going. And then obviously you can prod a little further uh, as to, you know, things like how does data storage work like, right? Like what kind of data does your organization process, store, transfer, right? And how is it secured? Um, those kind of conversations can be long, but then if you keep your questions focused and just try to get the high-level information, I think those can be really productive. Yeah. Have you run into situations where they say, I have all these vulnerabilities, can you fix them for me? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the expectation from, from any security professional is to just kind of solve security, right, from, from the first day. So yes, uh, obviously I do get asked that quite quite often, yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, we, we've, uh, having worked with a lot of other engineering people, like it's, it's amazing how sometimes they they try to think of Hey, your security. So you're responsible for doing everything security. That includes fixing my code for me. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, uh, thankfully, it doesn't happen as often these days as it's used to before. And, and I, I just want to add something here. To be honest, I don't think it's an unfair ask, right? Like it is my belief that security professionals should know how to read code and also how to write code, right? That is just something I I know and I know how important and valuable it is for my skills. So if somebody asks me to go and fix their code, it's, I'm happy to work with them, right? And I'm happy to uh, like recommend how to go about fixing something as opposed to just saying, look, this is your code, this is your responsibility. I'm not supposed to fix that. I think that's the sort of culture that, you know, if you set the culture on the right tone in the beginning, it will reap great benefits in the long run. Yeah, I, I I don't know, man. I mean, maybe I have to disagree with you in some context, right? Because uh, sure. so so I I get that in some cases where dev teams are maybe not the security experts, so you may have to help them on how to actually fix it. Or mm-hmm. you know, in some cases, security teams even build security systems like a secrets management system or sure. crypto systems, right? You give them and offer them as a service. But to me, like if I'm a developer, I'm writing code that has vulnerabilities and if I expect somebody else to fix it, I tend to think of it as like I go to a dentist and dentist tells me to floss my teeth and I said, hey, can you do it for me every night? Like that's, it's just, you know, in a way for me, it's my responsibility, right? Like if I'm writing that code and I'm introducing bugs in it. There's, there's, yes, I totally agree with that statement, right? However, I, this is again my opinion and my belief is as security professionals, you should make it difficult for the developers to commit bad code in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. By means of secure by default libraries or frameworks, right? So 
you already provided that guidance to them in the beginning. Now, if they choose to not follow that or go a different route, yes, that's when they need to go and fix their stuff. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, there's some nuances around that. Yeah, sure. 100%. 100% agreed. I think that's the best way of doing it. Like if, if I draw some parallels around how quality and testing has evolved, you know, back in the day, we used to have teams of QA uh, people. Developers would write code, send it to them. They would do testing send it back to developers for fixing. Like, and that has changed now. It doesn't happen in most cases, right? There's automated tasks. Developers write their own tasks. CICD systems just orchestrate those tests and deploy things as soon as they pass it. So all the developers see is whether that test passed or not. That's it, right? Security is not in that position just yet. We still do the testing for them. We run the scanners for them. We triage and prioritize vulnerabilities for them and then ship it back to the developers. And by that time, they are working on the third or the fourth feature already and they forgot about what they did. Uh, Yeah. So it's kind of, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, we're still living 10 years behind the the rest of the organization. Uh, but uh, taking the approach that you mentioned, which is ensuring secure by default or security guardrails or whatever that is, like putting it in place to to help the developers and influence the developers to build it secure from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, that's That's a much more effective way. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. The challenge is how do you actually do that, right? So yeah. uh, we've been talking about these secure by defaults for decades now. Um, yeah. A lot of lot of static analysis companies would say that, hey, you do this, we can do that. But I haven't seen a lot of people adopt it. Um, I'm curious how, how you are thinking about implementing those things from an operational perspective. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, recently, I've uh, again, like SaaS tools, like static analysis tools, I have never been a big fan of them just, just because of the amount of work it creates, right? Like the number of false positives, the number of triaging one has to do. Um, until, you know, I started playing with like SendGraph. Um, I, I am in process of writing a blog about how you can go about building a highly effective SaaS workflow, you know, and providing feedback as early as a PR or the pull request. Um, and I've had pretty good success with it, um, just because the feedback loop, right, is instant instant. As soon as a developer, tries to commit a PR, uh, and if, if they're not following a certain standard or whatever, if you provide that feed, feedback right then and there, you, you're going to see some changes, right? So I think that's the way to go about it, you know, the whole concept of shifting security uh, left and making sure you do the scanning, you provide the results in the CICD pipeline. I think that's the right approach. And I know it, it's far from being solved, obviously, um, but there's some good work happening. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Can you give me an example of an awesome guardrail or control that yes. you implemented using SEMGRAP? Yes, absolutely, 100%. So um, we all know how difficult authorization issues are to be found, right? Like you can't expect a scanner to find authorization issues just because it doesn't have the context, it's not smart enough, right? However, when it comes to SaaS tools, right, you, what you can do is you can come up with a framework where each of the endpoints that your application has, right? They they need a certain card or like a certain header or certain in other languages. I think they're they're called uh, decorators, right? And you can write a standard code to identify the endpoints if they don't have that particular guard, right? Uh, and there are a few different rules that you can write around it. First example is. Uh, as an organization, you standardize certain guards to be used across all services. So you can uh, 
catch any uh, endpoints that are not following that, or they are, or these services that are creating their own guards, which shouldn't be happening. That's one rule. B within the guards itself, there are certain checks that need to happen, right, to make sure that uh, you know you're you're allowing a certain account to get information from that account itself and not other accounts, right? Uh, things like IDOR issues. But again, there you can write rules to specifically check for that particular code. So yeah, I've had some great success again, and I, I do plan to blog about how to go about thinking about it. Uh, but I think authorization issues and identifying them at scale is something that I was, I didn't think was possible before using scanners. But I think the SaaS workflow, you know, has changed that. Phenomenal. Now that's a that's a great use case of enforcing a standard. Um, and I'm guessing you would have to go through a lot of the discussions with the engineering organizations to to have yes. everyone align on that standard, saying yes, yeah. this is an expectation. You also yeah. do it. And now we're going to implement this as a control. Uh, yes. I yeah. think that's really the first step is socializing. Right. How are you going to go about it, right? Standardizing that. If you don't have that, adoption is going to be really difficult. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In one of my previous companies, we went through an exercise of um, enforcing uh, a standard Docker-based image because earlier mm-hmm. people would use yeah. whatever they want to. But yeah. then, as a so initially, we came in with the uh, with the uh, with the opinion that hey, everyone should use one of these four approved base images, yeah. um, and a vast majority of the people uh, agreed to it. But then there were these corner use cases where you know you just have to use the upstream source image. You can't rebuild sure. it every time. So a lot of these corner cases came up, and then at some point, like after six months of socializing and working. That's when we were able to figure out that, okay, now we are at a position where we can enforce the use of approved base images, except for these, like, you know, a few of them, yeah, which we are absolutely. okay with. Uh, and I think SEMGREP also helps with some of those controls too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So so now this is, this is a topic that bleeds into a little bit beyond what traditionally is called application security, right? So, so now yeah. you're talking about container security and you're talking about, you know, cloud, uh, uh, you know, things and around it. Um, and I, I think, you, so the reason we are talking together is also the, the blog that you wrote recently around product security. So if you can uh, help understand what this new concept of product security actually means, like how is it different than application security? Uh, I think yeah. it'll be very helpful for our audience. Yeah, for sure. So um, I also mentioned this in my blog is that, you know, folks use these terms uh, interchangeably. Some consider AppSec as a subset of product security. I, I really don't have a, a strong opinion on this. Uh, but if, if we were to think about, you know, how it used to be referred way back and now how it is being referred, I think product security uh, does include things like uh, how do you secure the application and then how does the application get deployed securely, right? So that deployment piece, I don't think was historically considered when we spoke about application security. It was all about whether this application is secure or not, right? You uh, try to find all the OWASP categories in, in them, but then you would stop there when it comes to application security. I think in the newer world with you know containers and whatnot, it is super important to basically cover the entire life cycle from the point where the code gets committed to the point where it's actually deployed in production inside a container because there's so many things involved. There's CICD stuff, the secrets, of, you know, how do you handle secrets? Um, there's the access authorization, obviously. So I think when you consider all of that, 
that would, I think, qualify as park security. Right. And one of the interesting conversations that I had recently with uh, one of our colleagues was, um, so in, in his company, they don't actually build software products. It's easy to think about product security if your company is in in the business of building software product. But if you're building, you know, hardware or, you know, uh, some other right. devices or shoes, which has nothing to do with software products, then yeah. it's it's hard to think about it that way. Um, so, so the conversation we ended up having was, well, product security could be any software product could be an internal or an external product doesn't have to be an external customers but could be an internal application too that is critical for your business so anything it could be whatever it doesn't just mean like a, a product that a company is selling um sort of a different way to look at it but the, it it brings in this this um the sense of like it's it's beyond just software it's more full stack it includes your end to end life cycle um yeah. Uh, and and some of those things as well, uh, but but you're right. I mean, I think it's in a in a world where your CI/CD configuration is stored as code, your Kubernetes configuration, network configuration is stored as code, as code, cloud configuration is stored as code. Everything is as code, so it just makes sense to uh, to expand the definition of application security to also include some of these other things and 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 go beyond it. And right now we are playing with the terminology of product security. Uh, yeah, and and we'll see if that gets uh, better adoption. Yeah, I th- I think you you mentioned something there. Infrastructure as code, right? This has just you know uh, started to come more you know uh, in the line right. Like recently, is you know infrastructure is uh, immutable. You you have infrastructure as code, right? You have these tools at Terraform, Ansible. So I don't think this sort of existed before. So yes, infrastructure as code would absolutely count as you know a sub a subset of product security where you can run the same tools, whether it's SaaS or whatever, right, against the repositories that holds that code. So yeah, I think I think that's a great point. Um, so when you think about infrastructure as code security, what do you typically do? I mean, there are some companies, there are some products and some ways of analyzing your Terraform code, um, you know, sort of like a static analysis on Terraform code, right? And then mm-hmm. there are like the CSPM solutions that look at the runtime configurations of cloud and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, is, what is your view in terms of what should be done, step one, step two, what can come after? Do you have an opinion on that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I had some ideas around how to go about implementing it and the reason why I say I have an idea is because I haven't verified it fully to be confident, but I think it all comes back to the, you know, initial statement that secure by default framework, right? Mm. If your interest, if you can work with the infrastructure team, you know, to come up with some secure by default uh, Terraform modules to, so let's say, deploy a VPC, right? You can write rules to figure out if folks are actually using that module or not, right? So again, it, it gives you more assurance that um, as a security team, you're providing the right guidance. And then you can identify cases where, not, where they're not following that. And you can go and have that conversation as to why they're not. And then fine-tune your modules accordingly. So I think that iterative, constant, feedback-driven approach uh, seems to have worked in other cases. So I, I would be surprised if that doesn't work for infrastructure as core as well. Yeah. 
That's phenomenal. I mean, I think going uh, on that topic of an iterative approach, you you recently wrote about a lightweight approach to building an SDLC, mm-hmm. uh, secu- security in SDLC. Um, yeah. Can you share some of your thoughts? Uh, your blog is amazing, by the way, for, for our audience, if you're interested to read more. Also, can you share the the URL or the um, a place where they can go read more about it? Um, and if you can elaborate on what what the lightweight approach to secure SDLC is, yeah, sure thing. So, um, as as a founding product security engineer, as only one doing you know product security, uh, you know you you are expected to sort of improve the application security uh, posture of the organization and like somehow bake security in, right? And secure SDLC is the right way to go about it. You've, you know you must have heard about this from, you know, big companies like uh, Microsoft and Google, they all have very mature processes. But as a founding product security engineer, it can be pretty overwhelming, right? Because there's so many activities you could be doing, threat threat modeling, architecture reviews, code reviews. How do you prioritize what? And to what extent do you actually do these activities, right? So that that blog basically walks through a thought process of how you can do it in in you know in a way that that you can handle right. So the first step really is uh, something called a rapid risk assessment. I I I was basically inspired by how Mozilla uh, goes about doing the IRAs. They have written about it extensively. You can find on their blog, and, the, and then I also read some of the other blogs. But the idea is to make sure that you have the visibility into anything new that is getting built, shipped or anything that is already existing, right? And the way to get that visibility is to have your engineering organization fill a questionnaire, and that questionnaire will help you understand how critical or how risky a particular application or infrastructure really is. And based on the outcome from that rapid risk assessment, you could then figure out what additional activities would be required. To to give you a more concrete example, again, if, if an application is being introduced that uh, is supposed to be internet facing that is supposed to have a bunch of customer information right you are going to get that visibility from the from this rapid risk assessment and then you would obviously want to do additional activities like threat modeling and architecture reviews right so without figuring out all the details just that first step would allow you to figure out how to go about it right as as opposed to an internal application which is getting built it's not that risky or it's not that critical and you would just stop at the rapid risk assessment phase. So I think having this approach really helps you prioritize ruthlessly, which is something you have to do as a founding product security engineer. So one question I have on that topic is, um, I, by the way, I love Mozilla's RRA template as well. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very pragmatic. It's very practical. Yes. But the challenge that I had before was um, in, a, in, a, in a company that's been around a little bit, there will be applications and services that have been built, you know, years ago, if not months ago. Yeah. And yeah. there are several hundred developers or so, quite a few developers who are basically pushing features in them. There are multiple releases, uh, yeah. multiple services, and maybe there are a few new services getting added. Um, so in an environment where there is, you know, multiple releases happening at multiple times, different times, different services, not necessarily new services, but new updates new features sure. that could change the risk of a service. How do you know when to run this RRA? Yeah, no, that's 
That's a great question. And, you know, that is something I've struggled with, uh, to be honest. Again, all, all the things that I'm sharing are based on my experiences, right? And this is exactly uh, one of my biggest struggles that I experienced when I first started implementing the RIA is uh, the, the product teams, the engineering teams, they, they came to me and they asked me, when do they decide when to fill the RIA? All right, like uh, if they're shipping a new feature, uh, do they have to fill the RRA? If they if they are just making small changes, do they have to do that? And I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer here. To be honest, I think as a security engineer, I felt just giving them guidance and making them decide when is the right uh, opportunity. I think, like I think it comes back to the point that at some point you have to trust your engineers. You have to trust your engineering organization to make the decision because you can't be hand-holding them. You can't be enforcing policies on them. That's just something that doesn't scale, that doesn't work. So that's what I did. I basically, you know, uh, gave some brown back sessions. I, I presented about this RRA in our online meeting. I explained to them, like, why is RRA important? What is it that they're trying to capture from it? And here are some examples of when you should be filling RRA versus when you should not be feeling an RRA. And I think that sort of general guidance seemed to have worked. And I also told them, right, if you are confused, by default, just go and fill it. But if you're sure it's not going to affect significantly, then you don't have to fill it. So I think that approach worked well. Uh, obviously, it's it's not foolproof. There are cases when I see something that has been deployed that hasn't gone through the RRA. I, I see those as opportunities for me to improve the RRA process. Right. Yeah, and there was recently um, an interesting talk given by Teja. He's the Teja Mainedu. He's the yeah. product security at Splunk. And he gave a presentation at, I believe it was AppSec USA conference last year. Uh, and he talked about this exact same topic on how to trigger some of these assessments. Um, so I don't remember exactly what he was doing, but uh, what I've seen done very well is, at least in one of my previous companies, we we were struggling to figure out the right time when there was mm -hmm. less engineering process or less engineering discipline and how they bucket things together. So if the developers are basically working off of just random tickets, Jira tickets, in their mind, it all makes sense. But for security, it doesn't make sense because the individual Jira ticket might be very, very small and it will never meet the requirements or you know the, the full yeah. context from the rapid risk assessment. But yeah. when you aggregate those things to a feature level, so at some point when our engineering teams became mature, they said, okay, we're going to yeah. create this ticket for a feature and another ticket for a release. So then what we did was we created a Jira template that got attached to a feature mm -hmm. level ticket, not the individual small change, not the commit level changes. So yes, then yes. Um, those, I mean, there are typically fewer features. So you could complete that rapid risk assessment, which for us is like seven or eight questions. Yeah. Uh, and so we used to do that at a feature level, but we could only do it because the engineering processes were mature enough that they were yes. segmenting the, the tickets into certain buckets of work. Yes, and I think that's essentially why this is a struggle for us smaller companies, right? Because every product engineering team, they have their own ways of shipping software, and it's just not possible to have a consistent way of introducing this RRA step. So yeah, like at some point, it's just not possible to mandate it via policy or via feature ticket until your engineering organization speaks the same language, right? Yeah, so I think with, with every company as they go and mature, you're obviously going to improve your security processes as well. Right. Sure. 
Fantastic. So, okay. So RRA, rapid risk assessment is an important piece. What else is important as a part of your lightweight security DLC? Yeah, sure. So um, after RRA, right, like the outcome is basically a list of any follow-up activities that you would want to do on on a on a application or infrastructure. So I, I, I speak about uh, architecture reviews, right? Again, architecture reviews uh, in order to implement it in a lightweight fashion, uh, I, I believe the security team doesn't have to do anything special, right, out of the box. If the engineering organization already has a well-defined process of RFCs or, you know, design reviews or just asking for comments and feedback from, from other folks, I think that's a good place to integrate the security questions as well. And you can you can ask questions about how are they doing authentication, authorization, right? Are they introducing any endpoints that are being exposed to the uh, you know, uh, internet? So having those questions uh, basically allows you uh, an ins- uh, to have a better insight about the uh, technology stack, the, the frameworks that the application is proposing to you. So that's uh, one thing that that can. Uh, be implemented. The other thing is threat modeling. Uh, again, threat modeling, you know, it, it has been spoken at length by different folks, you know, and they are the experts. But I feel like a threat modeling can be as easy as you want it to be or as complicated, right? Uh, I've seen folks use tools uh, to go about threat modeling. That works really well. But I think just having that conversation with the engineering team and asking them questions about how is this particular component in interacting with this other component. How are you doing authentication? How is the uh, uh, you know how is the communication happening? Is it over HTTP? Just those basic questions uh, would lead you uh, in certain areas that can easily be identified as high risk areas or uh, some some areas that are not worth looking into. Right. So I think threat modeling is also a very good activity, and it's one of my favorite activities to do with uh, engineers. Is to figure out um, what threats a particular application faces before even code gets committed, right? So threat modeling, architecture reviews. I think code reviews. Uh, I didn't write about it much because I believe as as a founding product security engineer, uh, there's only so much code review you can really do. You cannot be reviewing code of every PR. It's just not possible, right? So I think uh, I consider it more like an ad hoc uh, activity, right? Where uh, you know exactly the repositories that hold your crown jewels that are, you know, that basically uh, deals with authentication. And then you just work with your engineering counterparts to make sure that they involve you in that code review whenever code gets committed. So that kind of approach seems to have worked well. Um, but yeah, those three, four activities, I think if if you can somehow figure out a way to embed or integrate within the SGLC, uh, you're going to create less friction you're not going to hamper developer velocity significantly, but yet you're still going to start getting more security signals, which is what you want. That's phenomenal. Um, and uh, I'm so that's that's a very good way to sum up all the um, uh, you know the high priority assessments or things that you should do to really go beyond just running tools, right? Because running tools will only yeah. give you a little bit of information, but this is really helping you understand the full picture, the business context yeah. of a lot of things, the true risk of a lot of things. 
Uh, I'm guessing you would run into challenges around staffing these things as well, because these will take time. These, uh, yeah. Especially if you want to do it well, then these are manual processes, manual things that need to be documented, that need to be discussed. Time and scheduling and all of that becomes important. Yeah, I, I think at some point you, you have to make it interesting enough for the engineers to start doing it themselves as opposed to relying on the security team. So again, to give an example, if you make threat modeling interesting enough, and if you if you make the engineers feel like attackers, that is an actual that they would want to do it, right? So yeah, resourcing is always going to be a problem. You just have to be smart enough to figure out ways around it. Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's... Um... That's a good way to think about it, that resourcing will always be an issue. We just have to pick and choose our battles, uh, figure out what's really important and understand that really well. Do you do anything to train your developers on security? Um, I think training is something that, again, I have a very different opinion as as compared to some of the other folks. Uh, Because I've seen it work really well, I've also seen it fail, like, you know, like there's no tomorrow, right? Because if, I believe, if you're, uh, developer training education is not super focused uh, with what they're doing on a day-to-day job. Nobody is going to be interested in learning about how to fix cross-site scripting, right? So if you have the resources to build a training around the stack that your uh, engineers work with on a daily basis, then it's going to be a super successful program, right? And it's just that as as the only product security engineer, you, you cannot be building that. Uh, in the beginning, what you can be doing is, you know, investing your resources in training or just working with engineers and and helping them understand what threat modeling is, how to think uh, about attackers, right? So that's the uh, training element that I think uh, should be implemented in the beginning as opposed to actual formal training. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just to connect to what you were saying earlier, I mean, there are two approaches. One is to train every developer to use authorization correctly, or mm-hmm. you build a guardrail around it to prevent it from yeah. happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a much yeah. more scalable approach. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I mean, and, and trust me, it works. Like, I was surprised uh, uh, that it, I I was able to identify endpoints uh, before it got deployed in production that could have exposed millions of customer information. I was mind blown when I saw that happen. And, you know, yeah, so it's just about how you approach and how you think about the culture and what works, what doesn't work. It definitely takes a few weeks to just understand the organization overall. Um, and you should be doing that, I feel. Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal. Uh, well, Anshuman, um, do you have any parting thoughts for somebody who's coming in brand new as a first person to build a product security or application security program. Any uh, any suggestions, any thoughts for people like that? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say don't get overwhelmed. Um, reach out for help if you feel like you need it. Uh, also, go read my blog. I, I, I feel I, I've shared at least my experience and insights, and I hope that is uh, helpful. And I'm more than happy to share ideas, uh, collaborate, so please feel free to reach out to me anytime. Phenomenal. And how do they reach out to you, Anshuman? Uh, you can find my information on my website, anshumanartia.com. I'm happy to post the link in the uh, podcast if that's okay. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll provide yep. that as well. Well, that's good. 
Anshuman, this was such a phenomenal chat. I love having uh, innovators and disruptors uh, on the podcast, people who are doing interesting things and not just doing it, but also sharing it with the rest of the security community to, uh, to help each other. So thank you so much for writing your blog. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast and uh, look forward to having you again. Yeah, uh, this was super uh, helpful to learn more about how you think as well, right? And yeah, I, I was, uh, I'm super happy to be here. And as always, uh, you know, always looking to collaborate and help solve security. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye.